0: This podcast is from the RAND Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about us and to explore RAND's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries. Hello, and welcome to RAND. I'm Jennifer Gould, Director of Strategic Communications. It's my pleasure to introduce you to tonight's speaker. Dr. Tom Tourette is a senior physical scientist at RAND. He specializes in energy, public safety, and homeland security policy. In his research, he has addressed issues related to emergency responder safety and health, management and coordination for disaster response, and individual preparedness and responses to terrorism. Most recently, Tom authored Managing Spent Nuclear Fuel, Strategy, Alternatives, and Policy Implications. And he has testified before the Federal Blue Ribbon Commission on America's Nuclear Future. Please join me in welcoming Dr. LaTourette.
1: Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here to be able to talk about um, nuclear power with you tonight. Uh, It's always an interesting and complex topic, and In light of recent trends and events, it's perhaps as interesting and complex as it's ever been. Um, Nuclear power is, of course, one of the main ways we produce electricity in the world. It accounts for about 14% of the electricity used in the world, about 20% used in the United States, and about 14% here in California. Uh, The remainder is made up with a variety of of sources, coal primarily, natural gas, hydropower, and then a a smidgen of petroleum and, and renewables. You know, each of these sources has its strengths and weaknesses. Uh, no, no source is ideal. And nuclear probably stands out among all the options as being subject to the most ambivalence. Um, and that ambivalence stems from the fact that it spans such a wide range of very favorable and very worrisome qualities. And we see that ambivalence manifest in the fact that, um, you know, the, in the wide range of attitudes about nuclear power around the world, uh, ranging from, you know, complete opposition to really ardent support and growth. And as is the nature with ambivalence, it varies from place to place and time to time. And certainly one of the factors that affects our attitudes about nuclear power um, are major accidents, uh, of which there have really been three. Three Mile Island, uh, Chernobyl, and now Fukushima. And so with the uh, approaching anniversary of the Fukushima disaster, it's an apt occasion to take a look at nuclear power and where it may be going. Um, Tonight I want to explore some of these favorable and worrisome qualities about nuclear power, and hopefully shed some light on the, the extent to which they affect its suitability as an electricity source. Uh, I'm going to cover a couple of, a number of options, but I'm going to spend more time on one in particular. Um, the, uh, oh, thank you. <laughs> right, I wanted to just put up. There, that'll just be there. I don't, have very, I don't have very many slides, but I thought I would put up a local power plant. That's Diablo Canyon here in California. Um, I'm going to spend more time on one in particular, that's the spent fuel management issue, and there's a few reasons for that. One is we've spent some time here studying it. Another is there have been some important policy developments. And then third, there's been some risks associated with the way we've been dealing with spent fuel that were revealed in the Fukushima accident. Um, After that, I'll finish up by just discussing what's happened in the world and in the U.S. in the aftermath of Fukushima and what that might mean for nuclear power moving forward. So as far as... Characteristics of nuclear power. I'll start with um, a big one nuclear weapons proliferation. Um, the fact that nuclear power was born essentially as a spin off of nuclear weapons development is that is, looms pretty large in most people's perceptions of, of nuclear power. Um, and for all the shortcomings of coal and natural gas, nobody's ever been annihilated with them. So it is something that people should worry about. Um, the, the risk that nuclear power can be a stepping stone to to nuclear weapons is a a valid and serious concern. We deal with that concern um, through international treaties that focus on rules and safeguards for preventing, uh, minimizing the risk that countries with nuclear power will make the jump to nuclear weapons. Um, I don't have time to go into that. It's a complicated issue for a whole other set of of discussions. Um, Although I will sort of point out one interesting fact. I think it's interesting is that turns out that a nuclear power plant itself is of very little interest or value to anybody interested in nuclear weapons. It's the, the real score is the place where you, you make the fuel for nuclear power plants, because both fuel for nuclear power plants and nuclear weapons both require a similar, very advanced, specialized technology and processes to enrich uranium in its fissionable isotope. So the worry is anybody with a fuel enrichment plant can pretty easily um, alter that and go on to enrich fuel to make nuclear weapons. And that in particular, is a special focus of treaties. And again, there's a whole bunch going on there and a whole bunch of of safeguards to prevent that from happening. One of the most clear-cut, if not always politically palatable, is to simply restrict the ability to to enrich fuel to a sort of a limited subset of countries um, and have them supply fuel to other countries around the world. And that way, anybody can have nuclear power without posing the risk of... of, um, producing nuclear weapons. Um, so that's one, of the, that's one of the areas. I'm going to go through, I think, five of them. The next one is cost. Uh, another really relevant consideration for nuclear power is cost. When it was first being developed, we were, we were told, uh, there were claims, that it would be too cheap to meter. Um, of course, that didn't turn out to be the case. Um, although, strictly speaking, when you look at a power plant that's up and running, nuclear is quite cheap, much cheaper than uh, natural gas and even cheaper than coal. But the problem is those early predictions didn't take into account how expensive it is to actually build a nuclear power plant itself. And when you do what's called a levelized cost analysis, that's where you... It's an attempt to compare apples to apples. You take the cost of building the plant, of fueling the plant, running the plant, decommissioning it, waste disposal, throw everything in so you're really comparing apples to apples, then uh, the plant construction costs get you and nuclear is is more expensive. But I'll return to that point in a minute. Another consideration we worry a lot about is the health risk. The health risk from nuclear stems primarily from the concern that there'll be radioactive releases in some kind of accident. Um, There have been around 50 confirmed deaths from radiation exposure from nuclear accidents, all from Chernobyl. Of course, there are expected to be far, far more uh, later extra cancer deaths from from the exposure, and and estimates range in the neighborhood of about 4,000 to maybe as much as 10,000 from Chernobyl. For comparison, at Fukushima, there were no deaths associated with radiation um, that I'm aware of, and there—it's way too early to, to. There are no real good estimates for what the extra cancer death in the long term might be, but early early predictions are that it may be zero. The dose just wasn't high enough. It may be as high as maybe a tenth of Chernobyl, so maybe a thousand. Um, so these numbers are—they're not trivial. There are some serious risks here, um, but as with everything in energy, it's instructive to compare. To alternatives. And take, for example, coal mining. There are at least 5,000 deaths from coal mining accidents every year around the world, every year. So we're talking about orders of magnitude, a couple orders of magnitude over a century, differences in health risks. Of course, people perceive different risks differently. And, um, you know, even though the outcome we observe over the long term is that nuclear is, in fact, much safer than coal. In a worst-case scenario, for a single incident, uh, nuclear is a lot less safe than coal. And it's these sort of dichotomies of risks that really do feed that ambivalence about nuclear power. Um, One of the most important positive qualities of nuclear power is it emits almost no greenhouse gas emissions. Um, In fact, running the plant itself emits almost nothing. And again, most of the emissions come from plant construction. And when you do... Uh, what's called a a life cycle analysis, which is essentially equivalent to a a levelized analysis, in that you, again, you try and compare apples to apples. You compute the the emissions from plant construction and running the plant and fueling the plant and decommissioning it and waste disposal. Nuclear comes out right at the bottom, along with wind and hydro, as having the lowest greenhouse gas emissions of any energy-producing technology. Um, Of course, there are other technologies, renewables, that also have very low greenhouse gas emissions. But when you look at the sort of the numbers, and particularly when you exclude hydropower, which uh, in this country has not increased in 30 years and is actually declining and and is never going to increase, that leaves just 4 percent of our electricity production from renewables, as opposed to uh, compared to 20 for nuclear. So the lesson is if you really want to be able to increase energy, uh, electricity production, at the same time reduce greenhouse gas emissions nuclear's got to stay a significant part of our our electricity portfolio. Um, Another way to appreciate the the lower greenhouse gas emissions is to return to this issue of cost. I said in the levelized cost analysis, we try to throw all the costs in just so we can compare apples to apples. But one of the costs that's not in there is the cost of greenhouse gas emissions, the sort of the social cost of climate change. And the reason it's not in there is because we don't yet have a real good handle on what those costs are. So they're not included in predictions and estimates and comparisons, and they're certainly not part of the market price yet. But we're learning a lot about that, and they are starting uh, to become included in in modeling, and it it seems just a matter of time before those costs do enter the market. And when they do, fossil fuels like coal and natural gas are going to get relatively more expensive, and nuclear will be uh, much more competitive. Um, So the final aspect of nuclear power I want to discuss is waste management. Um, amidst all the controversy and ambivalence about nuclear power, perhaps the one aspect of it that contributes most to that is waste management. Um, and to get into this, I think I need to just take you to school for a second and tell you about nuclear fuel. So, nuclear fuel for most commercial power plants around the world is consists of uranium oxide pellets. That little—they're about the size of the tip of your pinky finger. You take a whole bunch of these, stack them up in long metal, thin metal tubes. You take a couple hundred, 250 of these metal tubes, bundle them together in a cluster called a fuel assembly, and then you take maybe 100 to 200 or 300 of these and put them in a reactor core, and that's how you generate electricity. When these are new, they're not very radioactive at all, and they're pretty safe to handle. But once you put them in a reactor and the uranium starts fissioning uh, or splitting into a whole slew of so-called daughter products, uh, many of these daughter products are very radioactive and very dangerous. Um, and then the real dilemma comes from the fact that many of these daughter products remain dangerous for a very, very long time. So the point is you can't just toss this stuff into a landfill when you're done with it. In fact, you have to isolate it from human contact for tens of thousands of years. So therein lies the problem. Um, it's pretty obvious that we can't rely on human institutions to reliably manage and monitor something, like spent fuel or anything, for that a length of time. And so it's been a, there's a pretty much a worldwide consensus that the only way to deal with this is to bury it deep underground in such a way that it's isolated from human contact uh, and 10,000 10, or more years until it's no longer. And, and if by the time it eventually does leak and reach the, the biosphere, it's no longer dangerous. So really, since the virtual beginning of nuclear power, we've, need, we've, needed, we've known we've needed something called a permanent geological repository. And this is a schematic diagram of one. Uh, it's a cutaway, so that's showing the surface of the earth and then a cutaway of underground. It's conceptually very simple. It's, it's just a, a series of shafts and tunnels, deep, deep underground. You package up the spent fuel, you put it in, you backfill it, you seal it up, and you walk away. Uh, and, and you don't have to worry about it. That's, that's the idea. Despite knowing we would need one of these for you know, 50, 60 years, no one, no country has yet developed one of these. Uh, A few are close. Sweden and Finland are very close. Um, Not that we haven't tried. We were close uh, as well. Um, But I think the problem is everyone has continually underestimated, not just the technical, but really the social-political challenges of building one of these things. Um, And Like I say, not that we haven't tried, I don't have time to go into the... There's a long, gory history in the US, US about trying to build one of these things. Suffice it to say that we've just in the last couple years finished watching a very carefully crafted plan, 25, 30 years in the making, to develop a, a spent fuel repository at Yucca Mountain, Nevada. We've watched that plan implode. Uh, the site's been mothballed, if not completely scrapped. And so we're back to square one. We don't have a plan. And, so, and no one else does either. And so what that means is all of the waste from nuclear energy production ever produced in the world is still in temporary storage. Um, in the US, it's primarily at the reactor sites where it was first created, sitting in temporary storage. So the question is: at this point, is well, so that's the current situation. It's sort of instructive now to ask the big question: so what? You know, why do we care? Why is this something we want to change? And you know, for a long time people weren't sure we'd, we needed to. But I think by now, there are some pretty compelling reasons. And I'll go through three of them, although they all have their point and counterpoints, but I think in the end, they add up to a, a call for change. The first is, we're running out of space. Right? We've been storing this stuff temporarily for a long time. Spent fuel at reactors is stored in pools of water, because this is very dangerous stuff. The pools of water provide a safe way to take it out of the reactor, store it for a few years to let it cool down, and then ship it off to be disposed of. And these are, this is one here, this is a spent fuel storage pool. Every reactor has one. But what happened is when the repository failed to materialize, they started to fill up and fill up. They became de facto long-term storage facilities, something for which they were never designed. And so the first thing we did is is reorganize them, or so-called re-rack them, to hold... Four or five times as much as they were originally designed to hold, and then they kept filling up, and so then the next thing we did was uh, develop a new kind of storage called dry cask storage, and that is shown here. You take the spent fuel out of the pool, you put it in these enormous steel and concrete canisters or cylinders, and set it out on a concrete pad or in a vault, and uh, and let it sit there. And right now, about a quarter of our spent fuel in the country is in these, and about three-quarters is in the pools. And this works pretty well, and we could, you know, conceivably continue doing this for quite a while. But even this, in some cases, is not good enough, and particularly in cases where we have what's so-called stranded fuel. And stranded fuel means there's spent fuel sitting like this at a site where the reactor itself has been decommissioned, and in some cases, to, dismantled and gone. So the only thing left there is, is spent fuel. People don't like that. It's ugly. It, it leaves that nuclear legacy, and it also prevents redevelopment of the site in, into using it for something else. So that's, that's one. We're running out of space. A second argument we want to change the way we're dealing with spent fuel is an ethical argument. You often hear that we can't leave this for future generations to deal with. We have a responsibility to take care of it ourselves, which is probably a very valid argument, but I, I think it needs to be tempered with at least two nuances. And the first is we've already passed this on to future generations. Uh, nuclear power, that's my parents' generation. I wasn't even born when it got started. So that horse is out of the barn. Uh, that doesn't necessarily mean it's okay, but it does demonstrate that we can do it. We can, we can leave it, and we have. <laughs> um, the second counter to that argument is the equivalent of the carpenter's motto, measure twice, cut once. Meaning, dealing with spent fuel is a big, complicated, important problem, and you don't want to mess it up. Uh, and if that means taking your time and you're okay storing it temporarily in the interim, maybe that's the right thing to do. Um, the third argument that we might want to change what we're doing with spent fuel is the safety risks that were highlighted uh, with spent fuel storage, highlighted in the Fukushima accident. Beyond the better-known problem of meltdowns at reactor cores, which happened at Three Mile Island and Chernobyl and Fukushima, what also happened at Fukushima was there was a, a serious concern about the safety of the spent fuel storage pools. And the, r- the problem goes like this. Nuclear power plants, uh, they need external power. The spent fuel, as I said, is very radioactive. And because of that, it remains thermally very, very hot. And so when you put it in these spent fuel storage pools, you have to have external electricity to refrigerate this water, to keep this water cool. If not, the water heats up, it boils, it evaporates, the spent fuel is exposed to the air, at which point you can have what's paradoxically called a pool fire. The stuff can catch fire. Um, and at that point you can have you know, massive releases of radioactive material in the, in the plume, the smoke plume of the fire. And often, as was the case in Fukushima, there's actually a lot more spent fuel in the storage pool than there is in a reactor core. So this is potentially a very, very bad scenario. And I, I want to emphasize this is a potential scenario. Um, we still don't actually know exactly what happened with the spent fuel storage pool at Fukushima. We know it lost power. Um, the, the power. The local power grid was knocked out by the earthquake. The backup diesel generators were knocked out 45 minutes later by the tsunami. The backup, backup batteries came on, and they lasted for a few hours, which is all they're designed to do. But because of the devastation in the area, they couldn't get enough people and resources back to the site to plug in some new power, so they lost power. And initial reports, oh, and, and very significantly, there was, a, there was a gas explosion. It blew the roof off the building, blew the walls off the building. But we don't know if that gas came from the spent fuel or some other source. Initial reports said that, in fact, the pools did boil dry, the, f- the fuel did catch fire. But subsequent information uh, pretty strongly suggests that, in fact, little, if any, of the, the fuel was exposed, and, and there was little or no damage to the spent fuel in the spent fuel pools there. But... At a minimum, I think we can say it was a very close call. So, so taken together, these arguments say that we really do um, um, want to make a change in the way we deal with spent fuel. Um, but it doesn't necessarily mean we want to just you know, make a full steam effort, ahead effort to get this stuff underground as quickly as possible. The question we want to ask ourselves is, what's an acceptable long-term strategy for managing and ultimately disposing of spent nuclear fuel. So a couple of years ago, a team of us at RAN undertook a study to look at alternatives and to try and underst- determine which might be the best route to pursue. As far as alternatives go, um, turns out not there aren't very many feasible options, and we came up with four. Um, Hopefully. Yeah, so the first is reactivate Yucca Mountain. That's the... the s- the site I talked about that was abandoned, its, it's not obviously it's not gone. It's still there. Uh, there's still holes in the ground, although they didn't really dig out very much of it yet. Um, the rationale for this choice would be, and, and I'm not saying this is my rationale, the, the rationale favoring this argument is this site is fine. We've invested a tremendous amount of money and time and learning in this site, and it would be a waste and a shame to just walk away from it. The second alternative we looked at is what's known as centralized interim storage. That's where you take all the spent fuel on the surface at all these power plants around the country and you move it to one or a small number of surface storage facilities. You group it all together. And at the same time, you start a new site selection process for a geological repository. And the the motivation for this approach is Yucca Mountain's not okay. We can't use it. We need to find a new site. But that's going to take a long time starting over. So in the meantime, we need to make some, some progress towards our goals so we can move all the spent fuel, make good on the government's obligation to take the spent fuel from the utilities and move it all to a centralized site. The third option, which I don't really have a great graphic for, but is recycling. So uh, you can take a lot of what's in the spent fuel and recycle it and make new new. Uh, reactor fuel from it. And the rationale is there's a lot of energy potential in spent fuel. And a lot of people don't like to throw it away. Um, another uh, rationale for this is in some future incarnations, so there's a whole slew of ways this could happen, and it's, it's all very complicated and often in the future, but there are some future versions of this in which you would have less waste. You're always going to have waste, you're always going to need a permanent geological repository, whether you recycle or not but you could possibly reduce the amount of space you need in a repository. And then the fourth option uh, here, just showing a spent fuel pool and dry storage cask, is wait and see. Um, That's our, you know, we laugh, but that's been our sort of de facto policy. Even though it's not our formal policy, that's what we have been doing. Um, But this is an alternative that sort of says, any other alternative, there's just too much uncertainty, too much risk, so let's just formally not do anything and wait for some external event to trigger uh, our decisions. Well, these are all the alternatives that we could come up with, and they've all been looked at in the past. Um, and so we rolled up our sleeves, and we tried to analyze each one in terms of cost, and safety, and security, technical feasibility, public acceptance. And it turns out, while we know a lot about some of these, and, and a little about all of them, it's really hard to make a compelling case for one approach on those grounds, because we just don't know enough about how any decision is going to play out. Um, but what we did dis- sort of discover is that one of the ways we- they can be distinguished is in terms of the extent to which they address different priorities we often hear about spent fuel or about nuclear power, priorities like what I already mentioned, we've got to solve this problem quickly, or we need to pave the way for new nuclear power growth, or DOE can't be trusted we got to get it out of DOE and re, you know, rebuild a new process where there's more confidence and consensus. And so well, what you do is you take each of those priorities and you ask, well, which strategy is most consistent with this? And if you do that and if you can agree upon what your priori- priorities are, maybe you can start to come up with a strategy that everyone can agree on. Um, and when we did that, we didn't really set out to pick a winner, but when you consider the realities, um, three, of the, three of those opportunities... They don't have much promise as as formal policies. And what you end up with is the one in the upper right, the centralized interim storage and restarting a site selection process. And the reason is that, on the one hand, makes immediate progress towards your goal, demonstrable progress. Take possession of the spent fuel, show people you can get it out of the reactor sites, the government can take possession of it. it. At the same time, provides enough flexibility to develop a site where it's got more consensus and more confidence behind it, a site for a repository. I just want to finish my discussion about spent fuel to mention that at the same time we were doing our study, the president um, asked the Secretary of Energy to convene what's known as a Blue Ribbon Commission on America's nuclear future. And uh, this is a, a group of very experienced, very capable folks who, who were charged with charting a new course for how we should manage spent fuel in this country in light of the fact that the existing policy has you know, imploded. Um, And so they spent uh, about two years working hard and I think took very good opportunity of their, very good advantage of their opportunity to, you know, make some prescriptive, pretty prescriptive recommendations and chart a path forward. Um, Oh, yeah, their report, their final report came out about a month ago. Pardon me. And, And so... It's, their scope was a lot broader than ours, but it is interesting to note that where where our work overlapped, it's it's broadly consistent. Now um, that, that doesn't necessarily mean it's right or that the strategy they recommended will will work. Because if there's two things we know about managing spent fuel, it's that uh, nothing is ever really completely new in this business, and the other is it ain't over until it's over. We've been here before. We've had commissions. We've had strategy sessions. Priorities hand-wringing sessions, we've gone down this road. We've Every alternative we've looked at and, and chosen, we've examined before. And, uh, you know, if Yogi Berra were watching, I keep thinking, it's like deja vu all over again. <laughs> but, you know, the one advantage we have now is that we have some experience with what didn't work. So hopefully we can leverage that experience uh, to come up with something that will. So I'll just finish up by talking about uh, some of the things that have happened around the world and in the U.S. since the Fukushima disaster. Um, perhaps most significantly is several countries have um, opted out of or opted to stay out of or reduce their, their growth in, in nuclear energy. Germany, Belgium, and Switzerland have all officially declared that they're going to phase out nuclear power over the next 10, 10 to 20 years. Um, that's pretty significant, particularly in the case of Germany. But it's, it's significant, but it's not as profound as it may first at, at first appear. Um, these, because these countries were already very much on the fence. In fact, Germany and Belgium already had laws on the book phasing out nuclear power 10 years ago. And it was only in recent years that they put these laws, these phase-outs, on hold given the problems and concerns about how they're going to replace nuclear power with alternatives. So it's less of a we're changing course in response to Fukushima, and it's more sort of, we're going back to our original course. Um, Perhaps not surprisingly, Italy voted again to stay out of nuclear power. Um, Venezuela was considering getting into it, and although I don't think they voted, uh, Chavez said, no, I think we'll we'll give it a pass. Uh, Perhaps more significantly, Japan, where the disaster happened, has said, although there's no official um, policy movement yet, they've said they're going to phase out nuclear power over the next 40 years. And that is a real significant reversal from their previous trend. They're one of the biggest nuclear countries in the world. They were on a chart to increase nuclear power from 27% before Fukushima to 50, 55% in 2030. And, and so that reversal is pretty significant. Also, China, which is in the midst of a nuclear construction frenzy, um, has said that they're going to sort of slow down and scale back their capacity targets for 2030 by about 20 percent. So they're still building like crazy, but not quite as much as as they were. Um, Perhaps equally importantly, though, a number of big nuclear countries, the U.S., France, South Korea, Russia, Canada, the U.K., have said nothing about changing their plans for nuclear power in the aftermath of Fukushima. Um, in the U.S., well, let me just let me finish that one up. So overall, there are there are non-trivial planned reductions in nuclear power generating capacity as a response to Fukushima, but a lot of that will probably be. Uh, matched or overtaken by increases elsewhere. There's a lot of increase going on right now, a tremendous amount of building around the world. Um, in addition, these phase-outs, they don't happen overnight. Right? They're very gradual things that happen over the course of decades. And we've already seen that they can be put on hold, so it seems reasonable to believe they could be put on hold again or even reversed. You know, As the memories of Fukushima fade and the prospects of coming up with replacements for all this nuclear capacity, which is going to be coal natural gas in the, in the next decade or two. There's no way to do it with renewables yet. Uh, you know, sticking with nuclear may, may appear more attractive. So I, I sort of think we need to wait and see. In the U.S., the, imp- the impact of uh, the Fukushima accident has been relatively low-key. The U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission put together a task force charged with coming up with recommendations for improving safety in response to what we learned in Fukushima. And they're sort of their first order piece of news was they concluded there's no impending sort of imminent risk from what we're doing here, and they gave the green light to pretty much keep producing nuclear power the way we're doing. At the same time, they did make some recommendations for improving safety. Um, This included reassessing the seismic and flooding risk at all the nuclear power plants around the country, and they also took a number of steps to enhance sort of mitigation, including, not surprisingly, increasing the ability to withstand a power outage Uh, increasing the ability to keep spent fuel pools filled and powered in an emergency, as well as um, some other things related to emergency preparedness and response. So the the recommendations notably did not say anything, and I was quite surprised by this, didn't say anything about reducing the density of spent fuel in these storage pools. It didn't say anything about moving spent fuel from storage pools to dry casks. A lot of us were expecting that to come out of that. So implementing the recommendations of the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, it's sure to improve safety, but it's not really going to fundamentally change anything about how we do nuclear power in the U.S. Um, My final observation about the U.S. response to Fukushima is that just about a month ago, less than a year after the second-worst nuclear plant disaster in history, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission uh, granted construction and operation licenses for two new nuclear power plants in the state of Georgia. So it's hard not to interpret that as a sign that nuclear power is going to remain a pretty significant part of our energy portfolio for the foreseeable future. So, in summary, um, thanks for listening to me. I just want to leave you with three messages. First, no electricity source is ideal. They all have strengths and weaknesses, and certainly nuclear is no exception. Because of this... um, it's hard to unequivocally endorse or condemn anyone. So what we end up with is a mix. We have you know, tastes change, preferences change, conditions change. We have a, a wide variety of sources, and that's probably a good thing. It provides, uh, you know, flexibility, and, and it's robust in the face of changing conditions. Um, it takes a long time to shift nucle- uh, energy sources from one to another. And by having, and a lot of times, you know, Building infrastructure can't keep up with the way prices change and and attitudes change. By already having a wide mix, it provides us a little more flexibility to be able to shift around amongst those in response to changing conditions much more quickly than starting up from scratch with a new technology. Um, Secondly, we really appear to be at a turning point with regards to spent fuel management in the U.S. The one-two punch of the implosion of Yucca Mountain and the policy surrounding it and the, the health, the safety risks revealed in the, the Fukushima accident really indicate we can't keep doing what we're doing. Um, my sense is that the approach put forth by the Blue Ribbon Commission, and, and my sense, and from reading a lot of people's sense, is that it's a pretty reasonable approach, and what we end up doing will probably look a lot like what they've recommended. There are still a lot of details to, to be worked out, but I, I would say you should look for some movement there in the relatively near future. And then finally, uh, the response to the Fukushima accident has been pronounced in a few ways, but pretty modest overall, nothing too surprising. Countries that were already on their way out of nuclear power sort of reaffirmed that they want to get out. Countries that never wanted to get into nuclear power reaffirmed they don't want to get in. Japan is a little different. They have scaled back uh, if they do. That, that is a pretty significant change. The U.S. is revisiting the risks and enhancing safety in some ways. But if there's any surprise, it's really that, for the most part, nuclear power appears to be proceeding pretty much as it, as it was before the accident. So thank you very much. I'd be happy to take questions.
2: Great. We have time for some audience, audience <laughs> questions here. So we'll keep our
3: questions concise so we can get to as many as possible. Um, I think Nora I has one over here. One of the uh, uh, better-known, I guess, uh, uses for the spent fuel has been in artillery rounds. How much of the material has actually been able to be used in uh, some of the, the heavy casings and uh, tank busters that have been used in past uh, uh, conflicts?
1: Uh, that's a great question. It's, it's actually the depleted uranium from the enrichment process that's used for artillery. And, and when you take natural uranium ore and you want to enrich the proportion of uranium-235, you end up with a whole bunch of uranium-238 left over. And that is, I didn't even mention that. There is way more of that than any of the spent fuel I've talked about lying around. It's not particularly dangerous. It's not really radioactive. And it's very, very dense and very, very useful for, for artillery rounds way more than we would ever need for that. So, so th- that hardly makes a dent in what we're ever going to do with that.
0: What were the reasons behind the mothballing of Yucca Mountain?
1: Uh, <laughs> how much time have you got? I, I, I actually could not give you a coherent answer. I'm not sure any... Uh, the, the question was, what are the reasons behind the mothballing of the Yucca Mountain Repository? Mothballing, uh, abandoning, yeah, and it's it's really I, I, you know, you ask twenty experts and you get twenty answers. It was a long, complicated process, but I guess, uh, you know, again, we underestimated the the challenges. The process was probably way too prescriptive and way too top down, too federal down. The states didn't feel like they had enough say in the matter. Um, the the timing was too prescriptive, and so there was a lot of deadlines missed. The Department of Energy had some built-in conflicts of interest. They, on the one hand, had to do all the science and technology to make sure this thing was okay, but then they had the responsibility to meet all these deadlines and take possession of the spent fuel. So, uh, you know, you could say it was all Harry Reid. Uh, you could say it was the site was bad to begin with. Uh, there, you know. Every reason in the book has been explored, and it's really difficult to pin it on any one thing. It didn't work out. It's a, I think you know, it's not a bad site. It's not the best kind of rock. It's not the best site, but um, you know, the amount of engineering that went into the packaging, you could almost leave this stuff in the Senate Office Building. It's really. I mean.
3: <laughs> we have a question in the front.
1: Sure.
2: I just want to know what you thought of the French model of, you know, one reactor basically for the entire country. I think that's what they have, and they just kind of replicate it, and if that would ever work here.
1: Uh, You mean in terms of the technology they use for reactors? Well, I'm not anywhere near an expert in the technology. I think these things have a lifetime of 30, 40, 50, 60 years when you keep extending the license. Um, So... Sort of folding in new technology is a very slow process. Um, and the new technology is always better. It's much, much safer now. The things that went into, in, in Ge- or being built in Georgia, for example, as far as I understand, don't require, in the, in the event of a power outage, the spent fuel cooling pools don't require electricity. They have enough, uh, the way they're designed, you can have passive cooling. That's a, that's a, a great design feature. So I'm not sure you want to just build everything the same. I think you want to try and uh, keep up with the new, new technology as it becomes available.
3: We have a question in the center right here.
2: A long time ago I was a young journalist in Texas writing about all this stuff and went to Yucca Mountain and looked at the salt beds in Texas and read all the EIRs and survived to tell the tale. And and I have to say, it, it's sort of hard to believe that Yucca Mountain, out of the, the, the sites that they discovered or they, that they uncovered then, um, didn't survive to now um, in terms of, like, what's, what's left, what's best that's left, because that was on the Nevada test site, which was already ruined from God knows how many nuclear tests. It was already highly secure. It was it the water table emptied into Death Valley, Uh, Mm -hmm. you could just go down the line. There was a whole lot of reasons you would want to put it there. No one wants to live in the Nevada test site. So I'm just sort of curious, what out there is an opportunity now, even with much better um, encapsulation, et cetera, et
1: cetera? Well, I think there's two answers to that question. One is, sort of, as a geologist, there, there are a number of us who've been talking about salt, In fact, the very first studies in the '50s by the National Academies said, you know, salt is a great place to go, and because it's, it's, you know, it cracks heal. There's no water; it seals up, and then the whole thing kind of just closes down on itself. Um, That said, and there are a lot of good salt sites in the country, plenty. Um, But that said, I think the geologic characteristics are not, for sure, the whole story. And, and not as much of the story as we used to believe. I think we can do a lot with a lot of different kinds of rock and a lot of different environments we can work with. I think the real lesson was we spent too much time obsessing about the technical feasibility of this site, and it got narrowed down to one site pretty quickly, and not enough time engaging the folks who had to live with this and work with this to understand you know, how, you, how you could come up with a process that had a site associated with it, but it was the whole process of engagement that didn't work. And I think the lesson from Sweden, and, and I think Finland as well, is that they probably learned from watching us, in all fairness, uh, is you don't want to do that. You want to really have it come from the bottom up. And so there was a competition. Sweden had you know sites fighting for this. And in fact, the site that lost got more money. And the reason being that they didn't get the benefits of the economic benefits of producing this site, the construction and the operation of it. Uh, <laughs> I, I hadn't thought of it that way, but I suppose, yeah, right. <laughs> so I think the lesson is geology is important, but there's a lot of other things that we didn't pay enough attention to.
2: Question in the middle.
3: Yeah, how, how radioactive is the water in the storage pools, and, and how, how is that stored? What
0: do
2: they do with that?
1: You know, I don't really know in the storage pools? That's a good question. I think I, I know that it's, it's uh, very carefully treated, and it is radioactive. That I know. I don't know how dangerous it is and how it's treated. Probably if here, he might know, but I don't know the answer to that. That's a great question.
3: We, we have a question in the center right here.
1: Thank you. Uh,
3: first a comment with respect to Yucca Mountain, uh, I, I wonder if it isn't more political than technical. I know many public utilities with nuclear facilities have literally spent hundreds of millions of dollars investing in the Yucca Mountain uh, alternative only to see the, the broad public interest is served by not utilizing that facility. And that's just a comment more than a question, certainly a concern. In terms of questions, we know we have an abundance of natural gas in this country, and that begs the question in my mind, should we be developing our natural gas as a source for developing electricity, or should we continue to be pursuing the nuclear option, or both? And a related question with regard to this interim central storage facility that you mentioned that seems to be the path that we're on now. How secure is that? Is that above ground or below ground? And how do you protect against uh, uh, vandalism
1: or terrorism or worse? All, All great questions. In fact, even though the first one was a comment, I do want to clarify. The utilities paid hundreds of millions not to Yucca Mountain, but to the federal government. And so that money's still there, and it's still good. It's not like it's gone. So it goes to waste disposal wherever the federal government ends up doing it. So, so that's one clarification. As far as natural gas, yeah, we should, I think, given within you know, safe and regulatory defined bounds, producing more natural gas, we're doing it. I mean, it's, it's growing like crazy, and I think that's a good idea. I think I'm, really, I'm a real believer in a mix which is why I'm, I'm concerned that Japan is talking about eliminating nuclear there. They, of all people, need a real mix of sources. A lot of different things could happen there. Um, and so, so build more nuclear. I mean, we've got to build. Stuff gets retired and demand goes up. Uh, so more renewables, absolutely. I think we've got to be building more gas in the near term and, and more nuclear. And as far as the third question... The the centralized storage facility, as it's conceived, is essentially um, dry storage casks, as as you saw in in the photograph for the individual site. The rationale is, in fact, it could be more secure because you don't have 75 of these around the country, but you can actually centralize your security force. The actual sort of security threat in general for these dry storage casks is really quite minimal. I think you can fly planes into these things. It's a solid, sintered oxide encased in metal, encased in a, a canister, encased in concrete. So even if you were able to destroy one of these things, you're just breaking solids that sit on the ground. I think it, it's, a, it's a relatively low risk. And I think consolidating it, if anything, decreases that risk by providing opportunities um, to, to centralize resources.
4: Question in the front? Uh. Excuse me. My question is about the relative safety of the emergency preparations in the U.S. as opposed to Japan. And let me explain why I bring that up. Uh, it's my understanding that the emergency uh, preparations in Fukushima were found to be grossly inadequate from many points of view: a water supply, uh, energy, etc. And then going back a few years to Katrina. Where the levees were grossly under-engineered, and there was a lot of corruption involved in doing away with the um, the, uh, the the sea things that, that uh, the levees le- no not the levees uh, uh, Marshlands marshland oh uh, right, right. and uh, you know building casinos instead and then of course the the last summer's thing with the uh, Gulf oil spill since our reactors unlike those of France which I believe our uniform and design are all different in design. Who is minding the store in terms of evaluating the safety preparations at so many different designs? And how (coughs) satisfactory and adequate do you think they are?
1: Um, Well, that's a hard question. I think that I can answer part of it. The the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission is minding the store. That's their job, is to, to regulate... Uh, safety of U.S. commercial energy uh, enterprise. In theory. theory. Well, are they doing their job? You've been reading the papers as much as I have. Uh, There's a a lot of internal strife in the NRC right now. Um, As far as are we better prepared than Japan, that's always a tough one. I think we always think we are, um, but after Katrina, I think we realized we're not for that. And so it's a little bit tricky because after the fact it's very easy to criticize and it's very, before the fact it's very difficult to sometimes see these weaknesses and, and, and that said I have not looked at this in any detail and so in fact there may be significant differences and I'm, I'm just really not in a position to comment on them. Well it's politicized but like you said there's a lot of different kinds of reactors and the differences between them are very significant, very real in terms of what you have to do, how you have to regulate it, what you, what you have to worry about. Um, and so it's a, it's a complicated job.
3: We have a question in the back.
1: Um, this question relates to the intermediate storage
3: facility scheme that mm-hmm. you described. Did you do any work on the size of it, <clears throat> excuse me, or cost or duration? And, and as a corollary to that, wouldn't it be subject to the same political and,
1: and uh, uh, geographical? Uh, Fuhrer that the that the final site would yeah. be? Yeah, absolutely. Um, we have not looked at that yet. We're looking at it now. Um, the first part of that question, the size, the cost, um, the duration, all these questions of what this site would actually need to be. We have a rough idea of how much spent fuels in the country and how much is going to be produced in the, in the future, but we don't know if we want one site or two or three. But you're absolutely right. When I said we'd been here before and considered all these ideas before, absolutely we looked at that. That idea is not new. I mean, that's been around for decades. And it was incredibly controversial and uh, unsuccessful. People, the, the federal government tried to cite what was at the time known as monitored retrievable storage, which is essentially temporary storage where you monitor it. and uh, the, no one could come to agreement, and it was very complicated. There were places that wanted to do it, and the state opposed it, whereas the locality wanted to do it. And in, in, in that case, in fact, the federal government, oddly enough, the, state de- uh, the Interior Department stepped in and wouldn't grant access to build roads. So the federal government sort of, I don't know, double-blinded itself. It's very, very confusing and very, very political. The, one of the concerns is it would become a de facto permanent site. You know, No way are we putting this here. It'll never leave. Um, and, and that's a presumably a valid concern. In fact, that in the, in the policy we have now that's imploding, part of that says you can't do temporary storage. Our, our hands are really tied right now. It says you can't do temporary storage until you have a permanent geological repository in the works. And the rationale was exactly that point. We don't want this because we're worried it's going to be here forever, but now we can't build one because you can't build one until you've got a permanent repository. So that law is going to have to be rewritten, uh, no doubt. I
2: have a question in the middle.
3: You had mentioned a number of times that the uh, nuclear energy is uh, probably the most costly type of energy we can get, and yet uh, the state of Georgia just announced that they're going to have two new uh, nuclear energy plants. Uh, I, I would assume that they've looked at uh, other types of uh, ways of getting energy, and one of the other questionnaires mentioned uh, gas. Why, is this the only elective uh, uh, approach for a
1: state like Georgia to go to? Yeah, you know, I don't have a good answer for that. It's not the most expensive. Certainly wind, solar... Uh, biomass are much more expensive right now. But uh, coal and natural gas are, are cheaper. And so you know, what the calculus is and why you build a new... C- I mean, part of it is, of course, the rate payers pay it. So that's how they make their profit. Why the rate payers pay it, they, you know, I wish I had some of my colleagues, the economists here, who, who could tackle that for you. I don't really, I'm afraid I don't really have a good answer um, it may be a diversity thing.
3: I, I do apologize, but it looks like we've got time for one last question up at the front here.
0: I come here from Japan, and uh, I experienced that severe disaster. Therefore, before in advance my question, I'd like to appreciate your warmful support and uh, your pray for Japanese. As a Japanese, I'd like to appreciate that. thank you. And uh, yes, I come here to listen to your lecture, and uh, I would like to know that I'd like to have a much more prosperous uh, future. Are there any possibility or any space for the innovation in nuclear power industry? Because as you said that it is all about cliche. What we have talked about is now. Are there any future prosperous uh, innovation in the nuclear? F- industry, nuclear energy industry.
1: Uh, absolutely. And I, I can't begin to claim I'm an expert, so I won't I won't try to explain them, but there is a lot of research going on about new reactors. And and one of the goals of any technological development in nuclear is to improve safety, increase safety. Like I was mentioning the new new plants in, in the AP one thousand that Westinghouse is making, as I understand, don't you know, they can survive a power outage much better than existing fleets can. There's all kinds of things going on, tremendous amount of research to bring costs down and at the same time increase safety. So yes, there are good prospects, but it's a slow business. I mean, it's energy infrastructure to begin with, which is slow, and then the nuclear is particularly slow. So we're not going to see things change overnight. It's going to be gradual. Um, but I think there are, there are good prospects for m- cheaper, safer nuclear power in the long run, Absolutely.
0: This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. To learn how you can attend programs at RAND, visit us online at www.rand.org/events.